0: Good morning to you. I want to thank you for praying for me this week. Uh, We went away on study leave, and the goal is to get five messages done. Never quite sure if that's going to happen. This was the most productive study leave I ever had. I got six messages done. Now, you'll be able to decide whether they're any good, but they are completed. So thank you for praying. Uh, We are in 1 Corinthians 5 today as we journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. So I want to ask you a question. When you hear the word church discipline, what springs to mind? Maybe Pharisees sort of racking people on their knuckles? Uh, Some archaic practice from some ancient century? Uh, Something that you've heard of but never actually seen practiced? I ask this because 1 Corinthians 5 is upon us. And for the past four chapters in Corinthians, God's word has focused on removing the divisions that were within that congregation. But here in chapter 5, the subject shifts from divisions to church discipline. God's word moves from urging unity to purging a problem. Uh, from calling saints away from an unholy division, now towards a, a called to away holy kind of division. And sadly, the Corinthian Christians always got it backwards, it seems. Uh, They divided over petty personal preferences, and then they remained utterly united in their tolerance and progressiveness over flagrant and unrepentant wickedness. And such that it even caused the pagans to be shocked at the church's conduct. And so the Holy Spirit so moves the pen of Paul to urge a purge lest the congregation become so accustomed to egregious, willful intransigence that folks who were bought with the blood of Christ might instead live like the devil. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. And it's a really fitting title for our text today. That was dealing with personal holiness, but we're looking at congregational holiness, but still the same is true. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 5, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of ours. In the blue pew Bible in the rack in front of you, you should find 1 Corinthians 5 on page 1213, page 1213, 1 Corinthians 5. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to help us understand it better today. Would you pray? Lord, we ask that you would help us to leave our preconceived notions on this sensitive subject at the door. Help us to focus on Scripture this morning that we would reconsider our opinions on church discipline in light of your instructions. May we adjust our thrust to align with your perfect wisdom. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Amen. That's what the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of such a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. A brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a vile or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you were to judge? God judges those outside, but you purge the evil person from among you. It's hard passions, isn't it? It's not one we usually gravitate towards in our devotionals. When it comes to the subject of church discipline, uh, we find ourselves quickly besieged by questions. Questions like, hey, what's church discipline? That's a good question. Uh, Why do we engage in church discipline? Who ought to undergo church discipline and when? Uh, who performs church discipline and, and how? And is church lo- uh, discipline unloving, unnecessary, unchristlike? like Now, uh, we would need to do a very significant survey of a number of passages to fully answer all of those questions. But right now, God has providentially placed us in 1 Corinthians 5 as we journey through this book. And, and we're going to see at least... Eight simple principles on how they pertain to to our disciplining ourselves as a church for the purpose of godliness. So so eight principles over two Sundays. We start today with some of the basic questions. And the first question has to be this. Hey, what's church discipline? What's church discipline biblically? And that's point one on your outlines. If you unfold your bulletin, you'll come to a large outline. And one of the points is going to look like that. Church discipline involves removing a professing Christian from our local church fellowship for unrepentant, strident sin. And all those words matter in that definition. Church discipline involves removing a professing Christian, not a lost person, from our local church, not the universal church, the church only has authority within its local confines, uh, for unrepentant, that's a very important word. This isn't someone struggling, this isn't someone having difficulty, this isn't someone who's backsliding, this is a person who's unrepentant and strident in this sin. That's the definition we're going to go with, because that's what we're going to see in our passage. Listen carefully to verses 2, verses 5, verses 11, and verses 13. And you're going to see quite clearly just this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. This is something incestuous. And and you are arrogant. The churches, instead of being shocked by this and mourning and grieved by this, they're they're arrogant that they're so progressive that they celebrate this in their church. And if everyone was as progressive as we were, they would celebrate it too. And, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? The Holy Spirit tells this not-so-holy church. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The Corinthians were clearly to remove this person from their local fellowship. But by what authority would a local church and its leadership have in taking this rather drastic measure? Well, verse 3, the Bible says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is the authority of the local church, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, then you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So even in this removal and exclusion, the idea is to have a redemption, that he would, be, he would come to his senses as he's moved out from among the people of God, and the authority is based on the Lord of the church. Who is that? jesus christ it's jesus's church jesus gets to set the rules and, and so that is his christ body meeting in conformity to jesus's authority over that body the body's leadership may need at times to ask a stridently unrepentant person to leave until they're willing to repent and probably until they're willing to bear some fruit in keeping with repentance because a lot of people will give lip service and go right back to torpedoing the ship right That's why the Bible also talks about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So, why would God say do this? Why why remove the person from the local church? The idea here is, this puts the unrepentant person who says, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what the word of God says, I don't care what the will of God is, I wanna live my life my way. It puts that unrepentant person who's, who's currently fully committed to living in the world, well it just puts them firmly in the world. And the idea is that so the believer who's been delivered from the world would taste and feel just what the world's really like, and they would come to their senses and go, you know what, I was saved from that. I don't want to go back to that. The the idea is redemptive, not punitive. The the idea is to bring them to repentance, ideally for restoration. But it does have verse 5, and verse 5 is the, the painful part of the process. You are to deliver this man to who? Yeah, the idea is he wants to run with the devil. He needs to feel what that feels like. Remember, remember the, the, the the prodigal son? Did the prodigal son figure out he was making a mistake when he deeply wounded his father by leaving the estate? By, by taking his share when his father wasn't dead? By, by ruining the name of the family? By, by leaving the other brother to do everything? Did any of that get the prodigal son to get his attention? What got his attention, friends? When he reached a point where living with the devil was no longer fun. See, there's pleasure in sin for a... But in the end, there's a bill that comes due. And it wasn't until he reached the point that he was eating pea pods with the pigs, he was with unclean animals, and he says, you know what, it would be better to be a servant in my master's house. I don't think I can come back as a son, but at least if I was a servant, I'd be able to eat because I wish I was eating what these pigs are having, and I can't. Sometimes the only way we get... Our, our attention, when we're really defiant and strident, is we have to get a little bit of a taste of what this really feels like. Do you remember a guy named Jacob? Remember what his name meant? It meant heel grabber, it meant deceiver, right? Jacob was a master deceiver. He tricks his brother out of his birthright and his blessing. God was already going to give it to him. He said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. I was going to give it to Jacob anyway, but he wants to take it his way. Very New Jersey in Genesis there. And, 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 and so what happens to Jacob? God says, I'm going to fix this. So he sends Jacob to go live with a guy named Laban. And if if Jacob has a master's degree in in deceit and double teaming and double crossing and scheming, uh, Laban has a PhD. And and Laban changes his wages a hundred times and says, Have my pretty wife. And then, well, actually, (laughs) you can have the sister first. And you wake up and you go, Well, that wasn't quite how I thought that day was going to work out on my wedding day. Read the story. He he gets a master deceiver to deceive him repeatedly until he what? He repents of being this way himself. Sometimes we need a dose of our own medicine to wake us from the disease that would kill us otherwise. Please note, these people that are being purged, they're not lost people visiting our churches. Uh, These aren't seekers who are wanting to learn about Jesus. It's not what church discipline is for. Verse 11 is very clear, so the church ought to be very clear, but in our history, we've not always been so good about figuring this out. Verse 11, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is a professing Christian. If he's guilty of something significant, of sexual morality or greed or an idolatry or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, we'll talk about what those mean in a minute, not even to eat with such a one. So the idea, they weren't just removed from the church, but you were to also stop having... Uh, your, your normal fellowship with them, so that there's a pain, there's a price, there's an exclusion that makes them go, I, I miss the people of God, I miss the things of God, I, I miss my friends, and I need to move away from these things that are destroying me because I went back into that thing. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Our, our business as Christians isn't to judge lost people, although many Christians think that's their job. Uh, it's not the, is it not those inside the church? That is, there are times we have to exercise judgment if something's a big problem in the church. And so God judges those outside, you purge the evil one from among you. Now points three through five, as the sermon develops over these next two Sundays, are going to put more leaves on this tree uh, regarding someone who's stridently unrepentant. What does that mean? Because it doesn't mean just someone who's struggling or someone who sins, because all of us would get disciplined like every day if just simple sinners were going to experience this. But for now, we need to understand that church discipline removes that person from our local fellowship. We ought not have close association with them when that's occurred. We ought not even eat with such a one. Now, this procedure is only for those who call themselves brothers, which brings us to point two. Church discipline is not about the church protesting the world. It's not about the church protesting the world for being worldly. Do you know what worldly people do? They're worldly. Like, you shouldn't be surprised by that. You shouldn't be offended by that. You shouldn't be upset by that. You shouldn't be afraid of that. The world is going to live like the world. That's why there's light in the church to help the world see this city on a hill, the beauty of Jesus. Church discipline is not about the church protesting the world for being worldly. It's about the church remaining holy. It's about the church remaining holy. Holy. Sadly, in our history, sometimes some Christians spend more time denigrating the worldliness among the worldly than evangelizing the lost so they might not be worldly. Our mission is to have interaction with the non-Christian in a way that's redemptive, in a way that brings them towards Jesus, in a way that we intentionally share the love of Christ with sinners. Sinners need Jesus. Did you know that? Sinners need Jesus. And that's not to say that as a church we're, we're soft on sin, but we often try to tell the world to live like Christ. But you can't do that if you don't have Christ. It's an impossibility. And yet, throughout our history, some Christians have run around trying to clean up corpses instead of trying to bring the dead to life through the life-saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes in our history, some saints have spent more time picketing and protesting and boycotting those who we probably would have been better served praying for, loving on, and evangelizing with. Amen? Not a lot of amens there. Think about that. Now, unlike the first century church, friends, we do live in a democracy. And as such, we have certain freedoms. Indeed, the Bible says the church is the the, the pillar and foundation of the truth in this lost world. However, we need to notice what today's scripture says about this, because sometimes saints get confused. Apparently, Paul had already sent the church another letter. It's a letter that wasn't inspired as scripture, and so we no longer have it. But in that letter, he had already urged them to remove the pollution among them in their congregation. And when some saints got the letter, they got confused as to how they were to apply that. And they thought, well, the church needs to be holy. And, and so to be holy, we need to run away from the world and run away from sinners and keep those bad people away. We need to run away from them instead of befriend them. But you know, our Lord Jesus, you know what he was? He's a friend of sinners. But you know what was also true of Jesus? Jesus never partook of their sin. It's this really hard line of, of, I can come up to anyone. Everyone needs Jesus. I can befriend anyone. It costs me nothing to extend the love of Christ. And yet, as I do that, I don't want to be, become corrupted in that situation. So it's, it, it's a fine line, but, but we, we don't have a defensive posture against the world. We have a gospel posture, even as we have a somewhat defensive posture against our own worldliness when we're in that mix. Is that, is that making sense, this hard balance? Listen again, starting at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter, my other letter, the other letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, meaning not lost people. And by the way, not just sexually immoral people, he says. Because you know real quick, we can just make let's, it's only about sex and that's the only thing that the Bible's obsessed with. No, he says the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Because if you had to remove yourself from those people, you'd have to leave planet Earth, right? You could never get your driver's license fixed at the DMV. Because you stand around, going, look, idolater. <laughs> look, <laughs> like that's just who you're standing with, right? Okay. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. This is a person who's a professing Christian. Who's guilty of uh, uh, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a vile a drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Uh, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, lost people? It's those inside the church that we're supposed to judge. In these special, rare cases, God judges those outside. But in this case, you need to deal with the situation at hand. Purge the evil one from among you. So according to the scripture today, church discipline is not about saints protesting the world for being worldly. It's about helping the local church remain holy. When we dare to discipline someone, What will always happen is this. Someone will pop up and they will ask, what right do you have to do this? Who are you to judge another brother? And they'll go to places like we've already been in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 in our last chapter. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the appointed time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation or commendation from God. And so... But but you need to understand, God wrote chapter 4 and he wrote chapter 5. And so Christians ought not look at other Christians and evaluate their effectiveness of their ministry nor the reward that they shall receive from the Lord. That's God's job. Uh, Rewards are always up to God and they're always based on our faithfulness and our fruitfulness for Jesus. And since that's for Jesus, Jesus is in the best position to judge that. And so he does. Uh, Only Jesus knows our heart and only Jesus knows what eternity's fruit is born by our faithfulness to Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 5 is clear. When it comes to the unrepentant, strident sinner who professes faith in Christ, there are times, not every time, not all the time, but sometimes, saints are called to step in in that situation. And that brings us to point three today. Point three today is this. Church discipline is not about purging the things that we find abhorrent. Church discipline is not about purging the things that we find abhorrent, but about dealing with the type of things that put the vibrance of our witness in grave jeopardy. I'm going to say it one more time, then I'll unpack it, and we'll talk through it. Church discipline is not about purging the things that we don't like, the things that we find abhorrent but about dealing with the type of things that put our vibrance of our witness for Jesus in grave jeopardy. You see, some churches will church discipline because you, you know, didn't wear a tie, right? Or you engaged in mixed bathing, or you watched light go through celluloid. Those are called motion pictures. Do you, you, know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like there, there's this whole history in Christianity about we have our list, and that's what we discipline, but God has a list. It doesn't include those things. It includes other things, some of which we have no problem with at all. We think that's normalized Christianity. When when God says, I'd really like to see that not happening. Just as churches have not always done a biblical job in evangelizing instead of protesting, so too it is true that we often discipline people over things we find abhorrent instead of focusing on the things that put the vibrance of our witness for Jesus in grave jeopardy with the community. The item that brought the discipline in our passage was really unpleasant. It was an incestuous relationship that alarmed even the pagans. So a man has taken his mother as his wife. Now this probably means it was his stepmother, not his biological mother. Uh, you got to remember that uh, men married much Uh, younger women and so very likely this this stepmother was closer to his age than his father's age it's possible his father had died it's possible his father had divorced nonetheless it was something that even the pagans said that's not okay the church said we're full of grace around here we're going to put a flag about it it's so okay here you can drive down the road and know that's okay here God says that's not okay not if I'm here Verse 11 says, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, where is this church located? you Remember? It's very important. Corinth. And how was Corinth? On wheel, oh, morality. Tick, 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 tick. tick, 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 It was the sewer. It was the bottom. It was the worst. Okay? On the wheel of morality, Corinth was last. The word to Corinthianize meant to be an immoral person. So remember that first sermon. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our series, listen to the first sermon where we really unpacked the world of this port city that was known for its immorality. Uh, Corinth was a moral sewer. It was was dripping with corrupted sexuality. You couldn't avoid it, you couldn't run from it, you couldn't run away from it. Uh, Corinth abounded with prostitution and fornication and adultery and homosexuality. It was an epicenter. People went from everywhere else in the empire to Corinth to experience these things. But there are saints today who read this passage and they hear about sexual immorality and they're ready to pounce with their scarlet letters and their Pharisee thread. They've got it like right here, just waiting. Oh, we finally got here. Great. But he doesn't just single out sexual immorality, does he? He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality, or greed. How's greed in our church? Is greed Greed's, one, not a problem, and certainly not something we're concerned about, right? Or an idolater, that means you have something else higher than Jesus in your life. Or a reviler, we'll talk about that in a second. Or a drunkard or a swindler, let's unpack that. The greedy are those whose actions, okay, their actions argue that when push comes to shove, they love money more than Jesus. That's the greedy. The swindler is the one who will will cheat and lie and steal to grab that extra buck. He'll take it from little old ladies if he can get it, wherever it comes from. It's interesting that many churches would be very quick to expel the sexually immoral, and they have very little to say about the greedy and the, and the swindler. Oddly, you know, there are some churches where it seems like the only path to leadership, the only way to get on the elder board is to have wealth, even if everyone knows that wealth was secured through greedy swindling. And then there's the drunkard. The drunkard is the person who's clearly not routinely in the spirit's control, but who's routinely out of control. He, his mental reactions are controlled by the ingesting of fermentation, so he's out of control. And again, some, some saints will say, okay, 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 I'm with you, I'm with you. Uh, uh, let's purge the drunkard. Uh, let's purge the sexually immoral. And, you know, if we get somebody who's so obviously greedy that he, like, goes up on embezzlement charges in New Jersey, we can purge him, too. But then there's the reviler, well, who's that? We don't even know what that is. We ought to know what that is. The reviler is the word loidoras in the Greek, loidoras. The reviler is a slanderer. It's someone who, through gossip and innuendo, repeatedly assaults the reputation of others. It's a person who's abusive and contentious, whose words are are malicious and pernicious. The reviler kills a congregation's unity because the reviler sucks away our love, creates much mistrust and disgust, divisions and factions, and harbors hatred amongst the saints. Did you know, interestingly, in the New Testament, the most frequent person to be called out for church discipline in all of the Bible is not the scandalously immoral, be that sexually or financially, but rather the person who causes divisions and dissension. That's the most named person the church ought to stop and use church discipline to stop if necessary. Uh, Titus was left on an island called Crete. Crete was no wonderful place. Their own poets said that they are all lazy, right? Lazy gluttons and liars. And uh, that's their own people writing about how wonderful they are. And Titus is there... And uh, he's got some work to do. He's got to help strengthen the church by appointing elders in the different churches there on the island. And Titus 3.9 says this. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then warning him twice, that looks a lot like Matthew 18, have nothing more to do with him. That looks a lot like 1 Corinthians 5, doesn't it? Knowing that that person, the divisive, contentious, i got to have my way, it's my way or the highway, I'm going I'm to create factions until I have my way. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. But in many churches, those aren't people being disciplined, those are people being given committee heads. Right? The powerful, the power brokers. Uh, to the church situated in Rome, in the midst of all of the myriad of hedonistic pursuits, the rampant immorality and the insatiable greed that's happening in the, the capital city of ancient Rome, Romans 16, 17 only mentions for exclusion one brother, the one who causes divisions among Christians. Romans 16:17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and who create obstacles currently to the doctrine you've been taught. Do what with them? Avoid them. It's a 1 Corinthians 5 answer, isn't it? So If we go to the famous passage of Jesus on discipline, if we go to Matthew 18, and we'll do that a little bit in other messages, uh, we think about that, you're going to notice that Matthew 18, it's not sexual immorality. It's some kind of interpersonal dispute that leads to the need to have some kind of work done interpersonally. Nonetheless, the goal in Matthew 18 was for the two parties to try to work it out. If that proves impossible, one party is unwilling to repent when they need to, uh, you could go to other mature brothers, invite them into the situation. And those brothers may say, well, wait a minute, both of you are at fault. You both need to repent. Or they may say, look, you're not right in this. You're just full of hatred in this. Or they may say, you guys just need to forgive each other and move on. There's, the, the bringing in of the other brother isn't to be proven right, it might be proven to make sure that you are on the right track. Then it says you know, that we're to bring in this other person, and the other person's not specifically mentioned. Uh, But the idea would seem to be it would be someone spiritually mature. And so the Bible has a word for those that supposedly have maturity in the church. They call them elders. And there's an office of that. The office of elder is supposed to shepherd when there's problems and oversee where there's difficulty. So it would seem that these kind of issues come to the elders. And then the elders make deliberation. And if need be, they come back to the congregation. They may say it's time for exclusion. But I want you to notice that when formal church discipline is administered, In the famous Matthew 18 passage, it arose from an interpersonal dispute. It didn't arise from something sexual in nature. And friends, sometimes in some churches, do you know who the person most pushing for church discipline is? It's often the gossipy divisionist. Somebody needs to do something about that. Did you hear about this? I can't believe, and you know what I'm saying? You know who it is. You know how it is. You've been alive, right? It's very interesting that, ironically, the person most spoken of in need of disciplining in the New Testament is the one least frequently disciplined in our churches. Because we get this exactly wrong. Why is that? And I think it's because too often we forget point three. Church discipline is not about purging the things that we find abhorrent in our shibboleth list of things that you can't do in our little clique. But it's about dealing with the type of things that put our vibrance for Jesus in our witness in grave jeopardy in the community. Think about the person called in for discipline in the church in Thessalonica. Flip for just a second. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. It's on page 1260 of the Blue Pew Bibles. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. Page 1260. Paul says you're going to have to deal with some people. Wasn't people with the kind of sins that everyone else thinks you need to deal with. Verse 6. Now we command you. This is a command. They don't have a choice. We command you, brothers, church, in the name of the Lord Jesus, if you're going to be a church of the Lord Jesus, you're going to have to deal with this, that you keep away, that's the exclusion, the holy exclusion, the separation, the 1 Corinthians 5, the, 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 that's it, from any brother, again, it's a Christian, not a non-Christian, who what? Who's walking in idleness. Who's walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition you received for us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, that is, as teachers of the word of God, if a man Uh, lives by the gospel, he should eat by the gospel. It wasn't that we don't have that right, but to give you an example. We wanted to show you that hard work is what Jesus wants, and we were here for your souls, not for your wallets. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you, some in your church, they don't work. They walk in idleness. They're not busy at work. In fact, if you're not busy at work, you tend to be busy at evil. And they were busy bodies. They had time. Instead of doing the work of the Lord, they were doing the work of the lips. Now such persons we command and we encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this biblical letter, take note of that person and have Nothing to do with them. Church discipline. Why? That they might be ashamed. Why? So they might repent and do what honors Jesus. Now, this is a neat verse, verse 15. Listen to it. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. You still had to exclude them. You still had to say hard things. You had to say enough is enough. That person probably doesn't want to hear it. That person's probably not going to say, I'm so glad that you're concerned for my spiritual well-being. They're probably going to tell you off. But your attitude, just like our Chinese friend said to the official, I'll still love you. I'll still love you. You can wrong me. I'll still love you. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In the church in Thessalonica, which had folks who misunderstood the doctrine of the rapture to the point where they thought it meant that we should just sit back and wait for us all to be delivered into heaven at any minute. We should just quit our jobs and sit on our backsides. Interestingly, they didn't think that was true for every Christian, just the other Christians. They could sit on their backside and you were to give them bread. And it's the first signal that something selfish is happening. When other brothers need to work, so you could be a figure out if something rhymes with that. Um, since they were not busy doing the work God had prepared for them, they became busybodies. And Scripture says you need to warn those people, and then if they won't repent, if they won't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you need to just tell them to go, put them out of the church. You see, the folks disciplined in Scripture were always folks who were strident in their sin. They were unrepentant, and they were strident. They weren't ignorant, they weren't struggling, they weren't, hey, brother, pray for me because I'm having a difficulty winning in this area. That's not it. It's, I'm this way, and you have to accept it. I'm this way, and I'm not going to change it. I'm this way, and you must embrace it. But friends like Jesus, we ought to come alongside that person who's genuinely struggling with sin. We come alongside that person with hope and grace. We we don't come alongside that person beating them down. When somebody says, I'm struggling with this, or this is happening in my life, or we discover this is happening, our our first thing is to help them. And and, and if they want to be helped, then we, we try and come alongside them. It's a different thing when you come alongside someone who, after being explained, after being warned, after being told, after being exhorted, after being encouraged, they just say, this is how I am, and you need to deal with it. So church discipline is not about purging the things we find abhorrent but about dealing with the type of things that put the vibrance of our witness in grave danger in the community. Um, The chief person mentioned in scripture is the person who routinely causes division within the congregation. Folks whose unrepented actions are so scandalous, they harm the reputation of Jesus, like this incestuous relationship we see in 1 Corinthians 5. Or it could be some person also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, someone who routinely cheats and swindles. He's known as a cheater and a swindler. Because when those folks are part of your church and you invite someone to church and they go, Oh, look, the guy who cheated me out of my business deal is their first thought, That's where I want to know more about morality. I want to be part of that group. Do you follow? Our testimony walks around with us. And so there's some level of needing to guard our testimony. All Christians are just forgiven sinners. So we're going to be failures. That's okay. It's another thing to say, I'm going to just stridently, unrepentantly be this failure, and you need to be fine with it. Church discipline is not about purging the things that we find abhorrent, but about things that put the vibrance of our witness in grave jeopardy. Now in our passage, there's another brother, and this other brother's intransigent, unrepentance is mentioned, and his name is the idolater. And really if you think about all the things in this passage, from the sexually immoral to the financially immoral, really all of them are this person. It all comes back to idolatry. It's manifestations of that one reality. Because what is an idolater? Well, it's someone who repeatedly and unrepentantly loves something more than Jesus in their habitual actions in that particular situation. The greedy and the swindler apparently love money more than God, at least when it comes to money. Uh, the sexually immoral love sexual satisfaction more than godliness, at least in the case of holiness. Uh, the reviler, will they love gossip and, and dissension more than godly unity and biblical harmony, at least in those cases. So, so given how endemic sin is within us, Does that mean that we ought to constantly discipline everybody, every time, everywhere? Because this is what happens. You teach a truth and somebody learns a new truth and boy, they want to take that truth around and just beat everybody with it, right? I learned a new truth today. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, let's get them. So that's my fear in preaching this passage. That's my prayer in teaching this passage that you understand point four. We don't discipline everyone about everything, every time. Points four and five make that very clear. Point four is this: church discipline is rare. Church discipline is. We'll say it all together. What, what do you think? You're so participatory. I know you'll be right there with me. <laughs> church discipline is, yeah. yeah, like a good steak. All right. Church discipline is rare. I want you to consider the sixteen chapters of one Corinthians. Okay. There are people desecrating the Lord's Supper, denying the resurrection, and dividing into factions. There are Christians uh, leaving their spouses because they think it's more holy than being married, and there are other people rushing into unbiblical marriages because they think it's more holy to be married. Uh, There there are entire chapters dealing with wild, wicked worship wars where certain sets of gifts are are elevated until chaos ensues in the congregation and worship is entirely eliminated. And yet, in all those problems, and they go from chapter 1 to chapter 16, there's only one person. In the whole congregation at Corinth, one of the leading major cities in the world of that time, only one person mentioned for exclusion. The fellow that was in that strident, unrepentant, flagrant sin that was so obvious that even the pagans were revulsed by it and wanted nothing to do with Christians because of it. That's it. There's only... You know what that means? means church discipline is pretty rare, pretty rare. Now, there are several other scriptures that, ex- that urge us to exhort and encourage and assist one another when we wander, but there are relatively few in scripture that deal with church discipline. In the 27 books of our New Testament, you've got about six mentions, roughly. You've got Matthew 18, you've got Romans 16, 17, you've got Titus 3, you've got 2 Timothy 3, you've got 1 Timothy 5, regarding disciplining an elder, and then here in 1 Corinthians 5. That's about it in all 27 books of our New Testament. So, while we ought not utterly remove church discipline from the church manual, because it's God's church and he wrote the manual, we ought to view it always as the option of last resort. Absolute last. Like, if everything else fails, that's our last option. Many, many, many other things can be done to deal with any matter rather than this. But occasionally, rarely, it comes to this. So why is church discipline so rare? Because most saints, friends, here's the good news, okay? because most saints will come to their senses when they're lovingly confronted and prayerfully, patiently pleaded with. When when elders and others and friends come and say, look, there's a problem here. We need to fix this problem. We love you. We need to fix this. We can get through this. Jesus can get us through anything. He can get us through this. Why church discipline ought to be so rare? Because we ought to be a kind of people who when confronted lovingly, when brought with another person privately, when, 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 when addressed, uh, not mean-spirited, when our words are gracious and our concerns are real and not just personal, we ought to be able to be grown-ups and say, wow, I need to think about how I handle this. And so with that in mind, let's pray about this. Eh? With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's pray. Lord Jesus, the first thing I ask today as we cover this for two Sundays is that church discipline would be something Calvary would not experience anytime soon. I pray that you might keep us from having to go all the way to this and through this. That that you might always sober us up along the way that we can get along and show the love of Christ and the peace of Christ and the patience of Christ. Father, may we ever endeavor to keep short accounts with one another, and with you as our Savior. That we wouldn't run so far so fast that we become hardened to sin's deceitfulness and unwilling to be reasonable and repentant when we need to deal with things. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you might empower us to live carefully and circumspectly. And may you give us the humility that we might live lives that repent frequently because we know that you forgive lavishly. And so as we turn to our other brother, who may well have harmed us in something small, we pray, Lord, that we would be able to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. May love cover a multitude of offenses at Calvary. May your Holy Spirit graciously, faithfully, and progressively have us overflow with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control or against such things there is no law. And there's no need for law-keeping or score-settling. Lord, we know that Galatians 5, and 23 says what it says. But may we also know, may we also live, may we also see Galatians 5:24 and 25 happening here at Calvary. May it happen in our families and among those we encounter at work tomorrow. May we live what you give in Galatians 5. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May we, Galatians 6, so well that we don't have to Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5. For, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a transgression, may we who are spiritual restore him in a spirit of gentleness. May we keep watch over ourselves, lest we too be tempted. May we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Amen and amen.